This episode of The Happiness Question is brought to you by Jay Schiffman. Jay Schiffman is a public speaker, coach, and host of the Choose Your Struggle podcast. He interviews people with lived experiences on the topics of mental health, substance misuse, and recovery, and drug use and policy to help end stigma and normalize difficult conversations through empathy and vulnerability. Each year, over 125,000 Americans die from overdose and suicide combined. I'm not even talking about the other causes of death related to substance misuse and mental health. Just those two. Those are our friends, our neighbors, our family members. They go to our churches, eat next to us at our favorite restaurants. They talk to us through our favorite podcasts. And these deaths are completely preventable. There are massive system changes that need to happen. But until we can have an honest conversation about these topics, these lives will continue to be lost. That's why Jay produces the Choose Your Struggle podcast. That's why he tells his story. As a guy in long-term recovery who survived two suicide attempts and an overdose, he recognizes his privilege. He's been given a second chance in a country and a world where most people don't even get their first. For him not to use it for something truly meaningful would be a waste of his second chance. That's why he gives up every day to work to end the stigma and ensure that those who need help get the help they deserve, because we're in this together. Check out his podcast, Choose Your Struggle, by listening wherever you find podcasts. Hello and welcome to The Happiness Question. Today's guest is David Essel, sports psychologist, author, and relationships expert. Happiness is free, happiness is real. You can live a happy life, trust me, it is real. Happiness like medicine, trust me it can heal So hello friend, listen up, as I tell you this You can be happier, happier. You can be happier, happier. You can know happiness Sadness comes, but there is something greater. The choice is yours. You can choose to rise or stay down. So make a choice to be happy every day. No matter what may come or go, you can be happier. Happier. You can be happier. Happier. You can know.
Well, David, would you mind telling me a little bit more about yourself? Yeah, I'd love to, Camden. I've been in this business of personal growth for 40 years. I started out in the world of sports psychology, health and fitness, and then in 1990, transferred into what we call general counseling. So I work with athletes like I did in the 80s, but then I started branching off into a thousand different topics, everything from financial freedom to weight loss to relationship help. And so for 40 years now, Doing this industry, uh, helping people to make major changes in life is what our work is all about. Cool. I've always been kind of interested what the difference is between sports psychology and just psychology. That's a great question. There's very little differences. Psychology is psychology. If you're helping someone move through a bad marriage or you're helping someone try to recover from a bad match, there's a lot of similarities. And, and one of the things that we teach in sports psychology that we teach in regular counseling is something called emotional regulation. And it has everything to do with happiness. When people are able to emotionally regulate, when they're in control of their emotional response to the world, life becomes a lot easier. When individuals try to control and get overly frustrated about traffic, losing a match, losing a relationship or whatever, there's no emotional regulation there, Camden. So the work between sports psychology and regular counseling is so critically close, it's really even hard at times to say, this isn't what we do in sports psychology. I mean, even in sports psychology, we work with marriages. We work with relationships because the relationship at home can come out on the court if the relationship at home is terrible, right? So there isn't much difference, quite frankly. Okay, cool. What's your book about? Well, the latest book is called Love and Relationship Secrets That Everyone Needs to Know. It is a bestseller. And the book is basically the Bible on love and relationships. We prove in the book, and this is a pretty sad statistic, but it's an honest one, 80% of relationships in the United States of America suck. 80% of relationships are unhealthy. And so in the book, we explain how we came up with that percentage, because it's a verifiable percentage. And then we talk about, Camden, all the reasons why people struggle in relationships, moving too quickly from one to another, not forgiving past partners who have hurt us. So the book really is, as one of our publicists called it, the new Bible on love and relationships. It's not the book on how to have date nights or something like that. It's a book on why do we struggle so much in love and what do we need to do to change it? So I think people are responding very positively to it. It's not a, a light book at all. We go heavy into psychological principles. So if you want to know why relationships are so terrible, this is the book to get and the solution of how to heal them. It's all in the same book. Cool. So how did you get into relationship coaching? The very first client I had in 1990 that was not sport related, not sport psychology related, contacted me because her ex-husband had left her for a younger woman and she was filled with revenge and resentment. And that was my very first relationship work client. And it opened up a doorway that, and I love relation, I love working on relationships. I don't care how terrible they are. We do everything we can to help people move forward. But it started with my very first client that was not sport related. And ever since then, I've loved it. The law of attraction. <laughs> Interesting. 
Yeah, it's kind of a bunch of nonsense, Camden. I mean, the law of attraction is this philosophy that people teach, and I taught it from 1980 to 1996, so I know it very well, and I know it's a bunch of nonsense. So what people say is this, with the law of attraction, is whatever you put out into the world with your thoughts must return in kind. It's a very sophomoric, kindergarten kind of approach to success. If it was that easy, that all you had to do was say, I want a million dollars and it would come to you, you and I would not be talking today, Camden. <laughs> There'd be no need for radio podcasts to help people try to figure crap out. They would just go, oh, I'll just do it on my own. I want a great relationship and I want it to look like that. And all of a sudden they appear. That's the law of attraction, okay? It is so full of nonsense that unfortunately it hurts more people than helps them. Now, if someone woke up and they said, I'm going to meet my partner today, and they did, that would be called a miracle. That has nothing to do with the law of attraction. That's just a simple freaking miracle. So, and I always say to people when, when I'm talking about the law of attraction, because I taught it, I have every right in the world to destroy it, because I used to be one of those people out there saying it was true and it wasn't. But what I say is this, show me a bodybuilder on stage with an incredible physique who did it by affirmations, because that's the law of attraction, whatever we affirm to the universe must do. So you're gonna show me a bodybuilder that never went into the gym, <laughs> that's standing up on stage because they use the law of attraction to get a phenomenal body. Show me a surgeon that didn't go through med school, who through the law of attraction and positive affirmations became a brain surgeon. Show me anyone that's created great success in life and there's pretty darn good chance you're gonna see they work their butt off and they sacrificed and they did things that other people won't do. And when we talk about what's the definition of successful people, successful people do what 90% of the rest of us won't do. If it means they have to get up early to get to the gym because that's the only time they have, they get up early and they go to the gym because that's the only time they have. Successful people are willing to do what most of us won't do. So the law of attraction, unfortunately, got a lot of traction in around 2008 when a book called The Secret came out. And then law of attraction books started coming out left and right after that. Uh, I wish I could say they were true. That would be the greatest thing in the world to wake up and say, I'm just going to win the lottery today and you're $300 million richer. That would be awesome. But the odds of it happening are pretty tiny. So I think most of us would be better off by looking at the reality of success. What does it really take to be successful versus dreaming and fantastical thinking and affirmations that supposedly are going to do the work for us? Interesting. Before we get any more deep into this, what is your definition of success? Internal happiness, period. That's it. Success has nothing to do with the outside world. If you really want to know what success is, it's people who are content, people who are happy. And they may be very wealthy or they may be very poor. They may be in great shape. Maybe they're not in great shape, but they have this internal contentment. I talked earlier about emotional regulation. Emotional regulation is a crucial part of happy people. And what emotional regulation means is that if something happens, and I'll just give a simple example. Let's say two people are driving to the airport and they leave plenty of time to get their flight. They're in separate cars. They don't know each other. And they're halfway to the airport and there's a traffic accident. And they both turn on their radios in their separate cars and they hear the news that it's going to be a three-hour delay on I-75 due to this traffic accident that happened. The person who is not emotionally regulated flips out, calls everyone they know, talks about how unfair this is. They're going to miss this meeting. They're going to miss a wedding, that it shouldn't happen like this. And they just complain over and over and over again. That's because they don't have control over their emotions. 
happy people, content people, successful people all have control over their emotions. Now, the person in car B that is also going to miss their flight and they're going to miss the wedding and they're going to miss the meeting. And everything, they get frustrated, Camden. They absolutely get frustrated. But it's like three to four minutes long. They don't call all their friends and complain about what just happened. But now they go into action. What do I need? Okay, I need to call the airlines. I need to get on a later flight. I need to get the first one out tomorrow. What do I need to do? That's emotional regulation. You're still going to get frustrated, but you're going to give it three to four minutes. Then you're moving on. Same thing with if you get rejected and you ask someone out. Same thing is if you get dropped from a sports team or a band or whatever it might be. Like people have a tendency to freak out. Those who are emotionally regulated will be upset. They'll be hurt. They'll be disappointed. And then they're moving on. Yeah. So how do you measure your rate of success? Well, I think there's a couple ways to do it. The most important one that I mentioned is my internal view of myself. I used to be a workaholic and I used to put in 14 hour days, six, seven days a week. And I thought I needed to do that to be successful. And that was a message given to me by the outside world. It wasn't necessary. Now I've been in this field a long time, 40 years. So at some point you have to say enough is enough. I have enough of X. I have enough of Y. I have enough of Z. I don't need any more. And that's where I am right now. I look at my life. I'm very blessed, extremely blessed. I've earned it. I've worked very hard to achieve it. But I don't really need to continue to achieve to feel like I'm a success. I am right now. If I were to die tomorrow, I'm totally fulfilled. There is nothing I haven't done that I go, oh my God, I've got to do this before I die. There isn't a certain amount of money I have to have in the bank before I die. I'm, I'm done. I'm done. Absolutely done. I'm very happy. If I get huge breaks in the future, awesome. But I don't need it to continue to be content, Camden. And I think that that's a message that too many people don't hear. We hear about how do you measure success? When I make a million dollars a year, I'll be successful. When I make 300,000, I'll be successful. When I have this body, I'll be successful. When I have this car. But really, those people who are content feel successful now. And anything else that comes in the future is added bonus, gravy, awesome, bring it on. But we don't need more than we have. When you work with couples as a relationship, Coach, what is the biggest problem that you see in those relationships? The number one issue in relationships that are struggling are unresolved resentments. Let that sink in. So something happened two years ago, 20 years ago, and they haven't let it go. Something happened oh, two weeks ago and people aren't talking about it. They're not processing through. So it's the resentments that we have against our partner that we don't take care of that end up coming and biting us in the butt. But when people take care of their past resentments and let them go, it's like we're starting with a clean card. Like we're open, we're loving, we're compassionate, we're communicative because we've let go of those past hurts. Now, sometimes that can take a lot of work. We've worked with people where there's been affairs in the marriage. And so to let go and to forgive your partner who's had an affair is a lot of work. I'm not saying that's easy, but it's definitely worth it. And what we say to people is if you don't let go of the resentments now, you're going to carry them into your next relationship. So it's a good idea to get rid of them now. And that's one of the most important things people could do in order to heal their current relationship. What other tips do you have for us about relationships? Well, I, I think we say at the end of a relationship that ends that we should take a year off from dating. This is a big one. One of the secrets in our book, Love and Relationship Secrets that everyone needs to know. If you're in a relationship that's longer than a year, a year or longer, and it ends, 
take a complete year off. Now that also means if you're in a relationship for 10 years and it ends, take a year off. But the reason we say that is for two reasons, Camden. Number one, during that year, you've got to evaluate how you screwed up in the relationship. In all the years of doing this work, I've never worked with someone who didn't have any role in the dysfunction of a relationship that they ended. Like everyone has a role. So you've got to find out what your role was. What mistakes did you make in this last relationship so you don't make them again? Then the other thing we need to do is we need to write down the traits of this last partner that weren't a good match for us. We need to get very conscious and maybe we dated someone that didn't take care of their health or maybe we dated someone that treated others with disrespect. Whatever it might be, we need to write down those traits that that person had that didn't work for us so we don't repeat it in the future. And if we start dating someone and we see they have the same traits that the last person had that didn't work, we need to be able to walk away before we invest too much time into something that isn't going to cut it. So why do you have such a problem with the law of attraction? Because it's a lie. And what would be a better rule of thumb to live by? Like what is your new law of attraction of sorts? Yeah, if, if you want to look at a formula for success, it would be choose one major goal to go after at a time, not more than one, number one. Number two, hire an accountability partner to keep your feet to the fire to do the work that you're supposed to do. If you just do those two things, you could be incredibly successful in life, but you're gonna to have to work your butt off. Like very few people are born into this world with a silver spoon in their mouth where they never have to work, they've got millions of dollars. And a lot of those people become addicts. When you're born into a lot of money and you don't have responsibility, it's really easy to abuse that money and to become addicted to a lot of different things. So what we want to do is from the law of attraction, which is not a real law anyway. And by the way, if it was a law, that means it should work all the time. That's what a law says. So if, it, if the law of attraction was a real law, that no matter what you put out there, everyone. So if you had a thought, I am free of cancer, you should be free of cancer with the law of attraction. I mean, that's how simplistic and kindergartenish it's like. It's like, wouldn't that be nice? We just wish things away. But in reality, if you want to call it the law of success says, what goal do you not want to go after? What are you procrastinating? Is it your health? Is it your money? Is it relationships? Is it a career? What are you procrastinating on? Pick that one goal and then find someone that's going to check in with you weekly to make sure you're doing the work on a daily basis to change. That would be the best method for success. How can we better recognize the roles that we play in our bad relationships? Well, I think the first thing I mentioned a, a minute ago is to write down what we do incorrectly in our relationships and friendships. Are we too bossy? Do we have to have the last word? Do we always have to be right? Do we argue when there's no need to argue? These are things that we need to evaluate with inside ourselves. And the writing exercise when a relationship ends that I gave before is very powerful. Write about your role in a dysfunction. Did you stay with someone that lied to you too long? Did you stay with someone that cheated on you and you didn't get help? You didn't work through it with a professional. Like what, what's your role in it? Did you put your head underneath the sand? Did you play ostrich when things were going on and you knew it wasn't cool, but you continued to stay? These are the roles we want to look at before we go back into dating and a new person. So what hope can you give to those that are currently going through a bad relationship or have just recently come out of a bad relationship? I think the most important thing is to do what most people don't, and that is 
to stay single for a while. That's the biggest mistake people make is they leave a relationship and they jump right into another one. And that's a sign of very low self-esteem and self-confidence. Someone who has a lot of confidence says, okay, this relationship was tough, the breakup was tough, but I need to move forward. And so we have to work on forgiving our past partner, which a lot of people don't want to do. When a relationship ends, the last thing they want to do is forgive their past partner for errors that that person made, but we really need to forgive in order to move on. And then we keep going back to taking time off, get to know yourself, get back into your circle of friends, get back into your hobbies if you've dropped them because you're in a relationship. And a lot of people do that, Camden. They get all hooked up into someone and then all of a sudden their friends become secondary, their hobbies become secondary and we lose ourselves. So if you lost yourself in a relationship and you don't want that to happen again, just make sure that when you get into a new relationship that you keep your friends very active by your side. You keep your hobbies very active by your side and you don't lose yourself into someone else's world. It's easy to do to all of a sudden get lost because of the excitement of a new relationship and the passion and all those kind of things are beautiful, but we don't want to lose our own self in a relationship. Why is forgiveness such an important concept in a relationship? You know, without forgiveness, we carry forward jadedness into relationships. So if you're dating a man or you're dating a woman and, and you move, you leave the relationship because they did something inappropriate, when we forgive them, we don't leave, let them off the hook. We let ourselves off the hook. We don't carry that burden of anger, resentment. And probably one of the greatest stories I can share is a friend of mine, Scarlett Lewis, in regards to forgiveness. Eight years ago, Scarlett's son, Jesse, who was six years of age, was murdered, shot down at the Sandy Hook Elementary School Massacre in Connecticut. Six years of age, a first grader. It was horrific what happened to him. And so Scarlett, I had her on my radio show eight months after the murder. And I had contacted her and said, hey, I want to have you on the show when you're ready to talk about the loss of your son and the killer and everything. She goes, I'm ready right now. I said, Scarlett, it's only been eight months. She said, David, I've been doing the deep work, the work that you do with your clients. And I really want to come on the show. So we brought her on the show eight months after her son, Jesse, was murdered. And one of the things that we had talked about was her willingness to forgive the shooter, Adam Lanza. And I, I said to her, how is it that you can go so quickly to forgiveness? And her answer was this. She said, Adam Lanza may have taken my son, Jesse, at six years old, away from me. But I'm not going to let him take the rest of my life from me and my other son, JT. If I don't forgive him, my resentments against him for the rest of my life means he will own me. Even though he's dead, if I don't forgive him, the anger inside me will carry on for the rest of my life and Adam Lanza wins. So I can't have that happen. So I'm gonna completely forgive him so I can be free and my son JT can be free and we can do the work now that I'm here to do. And now she's one of the top forgiveness speakers in the world. So when we forgive someone who has hurt us, now that's an extreme example, but it still works with all examples of forgiveness. We don't forgive that person to let them off the hook. We forgive them so that we don't carry the pain and the burden of vengeance and resentment for the rest of our life. What qualities do you see in good relationships that are missing in bad ones? Number one is in good relationships, people allow their partner to be wrong without correcting them. It's a great trait. If your partner uses a statistic that's wrong, you don't correct them in front of other people. Like that's a beautiful trait. If they say something goofy, you don't correct them. 
If they say something bizarre, you don't correct them. In other words, healthy relationships, we allow our partner to be human. We allow them to make mistakes and we don't have to jump down every mistake they make and make it a big deal. I'd say that's probably one of the greatest traits of healthy relationships. Not having to have the last word, allowing your partner to have the last word and to walk away without you having to up them, top them, is a beautiful trait of humility that should be in all relationships. And then the other thing I'm going to say is the healthiest relationships that I've seen, both people still have their own lives. They may have different hobbies, different friends. They still carry on with their own goals and dreams, even though they're a partnership. They don't have to do everything together side by side. And those are some of the traits of really good, healthy relationships. Well, I saw that you also mentioned like habits and things like that, that you work on, but you don't believe in the current 21 day. I'll tell you, you know, 21 days to change a habit. That's what you're talking about, right? Now, here's a great story for you, Camden. So years ago, I'm speaking at a, a publishing conference for publishers of magazines. And I was talking about that it takes on average six months to a year to change a habit. Okay, that's factual. If you've had a habit for a long time, maybe drinking and you don't want to drink anymore, maybe you're a procrastinator and you're tired of procrastinating, maybe you're lazy as hell, and but, but you haven't changed anything about it. Like We've got to look at these things and we've got to say, hey, listen, I'm sabotaging my own success here. In order for me to be successful, I've got to do those things that I'd rather not do. I've got to get up early when I'd rather not get up early. I've got to allow people to be right. I keep going back to that statement. It's a powerful statement to allow people to be right when they're wrong. It's a very high level of confidence for people that do that. So there's a lot we can accomplish in this world if we're willing to get humble, Camden, and ask for help. I like that. Allow people to be right when they're wrong. That's really hard to do. Yeah, it's really hard. And right now, with all the controversy in this country, with race relations, politics, the pandemic, et cetera, people are fighting left and right over really ridiculous, stupid things because they don't want anyone to be right. We want to have the last word. We want people to recognize us as the experts. God, you go on social media, it's disgusting. Seeing people arguing constantly about all these concepts. Is is COVID-19 man-made? Is it a conspiracy theory? I mean, you can go up and down the road on all these things. No one's going to win. Everyone's losing who's taking part of these battles. They're all losing. I, I tell people, stay away from media, stay away from television, minimize social media, because there's no benefit in getting engaged with ridiculous communication over things that no one really truly knows the answer for right now. It's really valid. Yeah, it's all speculation. So, I mean, protect yourself, right? Do what you think is right to protect your health and the health of others, and then get off your soapbox. (laughs) Get off your soapbox where you think you're so right about everything and let people have their own opinion. On social media, if we post something, yesterday on my radio show, I did a show, it's called how would the world be different if Jesus was black? If Jesus Christ was black, how would the world be different? That's a very interesting topic and it's a great topic for race relations. And when I posted on social media, we got a lot of negative feedback from it, but I don't respond to anyone. You wanna have a, a negative opinion? Fine, I'm not gonna battle you. I put my opinion out there. If yours is different, I could care less. <laughs> you're, not gonna see me, you're not gonna see me arguing with anyone. And that's because I have extremely high levels of self-confidence. And it's taken me years. And this isn't an arrogant statement. It's taken me a long time working really hard to have the level of confidence that I don't have to argue with someone if they disagree with me. 
There's no need to. I have my opinion. I state it. You have yours. It's different. We don't have to go any further. Because what most people want to do, Camden, is they want you to get into an argument. And they will go forever. If you're on social media and you see some of these threads of these idiots going back and forth at each other about who's right and who's wrong regarding conspiracy, not conspiracy, blah, 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 it, it's insanity. And the only people that argue like that are people with extremely low levels of self-confidence. I don't care how smart you are. If you're stupid enough to get into an online thread argument, you're not a very smart person. It takes street smarts in this world. Your education isn't anywhere near as valuable as your street smarts. And when I'm talking about confidence, that's street smarts. You're smart enough to avoid ridiculous conversation. That's street smarts. So I want people to use their street smarts versus their quote unquote knowledge that, oh, I've researched this and I'm the one that has the answers. That's a very arrogant approach to living. So I guess I forgot to ask you when we were talking about habits earlier. Why do you think that habits take so long to form? Like, why is that a thing? Yeah, well, let me go back to that story. So I'm at the conference and I'm speaking to the publishers. And, this, and I was saying it's six months to a year. And I'll explain why it takes that long to change a habit. And this woman said, well, what about that 21 day thing? And I said, listen. I've worked in this world a long time. I've never seen a serious alcoholic get sober in 21 days. I've never seen someone in financial ruin turn on their money in 21 days. I've never seen an individual with extremely low self-confidence become confident in 21 days. I've just never seen it. Now, it may have happened, but I just haven't seen it. And this woman raised her hand and she said, David, I can help with this. I said, awesome. She goes, I was raised in the military and we constantly moved all around the world. My father was a sharpshooter and he would go and train riflemen on how to become incredibly accurate with their shooting techniques, right? So he came home one day from dinner and he was talking about, or for dinner, and he was talking about how in 21 days he's got these guys that were terrible shooters to be really good shooters. And so she said, I'm sitting at the table and I go, Dan, does everyone change habits in 21 days like that? And he looks at me and he says to her, well, honey, let me tell you this. I have no idea if that's an accurate statement. But my supervisor told me when I joined the army that it was accurate and I had to believe him. So when I tell everyone underneath me that this is an accurate statement, they believe me. Now, it's kind of a funny story because could you become a sharpshooter in 21 days? Well, it would depend on the training techniques, how many hours per day. I would probably say no. I would probably say if you're an average shooter and you want to be a sharpshooter to do it in 21 days, to do anything in 21 days is probably not that possible if it's a huge habit that you're trying to change. When we say it takes six months to a year, and I even like to go to a year, when I got sober years ago, it took me 365 days of being sober, going through holidays, birthdays, funerals, weddings, and not drinking for me to feel really comfortable as a sober human being. When I looked at changing my body, when I, I made a radical change in my body, it took about a year of training really hard to get the level of muscularity that I wanted. So we say to people, listen, if on average, a woman lives 83 years and a guy lives 78 years, take one year out of your life and master something. Like just take one year and fully put it into your finances or your relationship or your body or whatever it is. And you'll be amazed, Camden, a year from now, if you make that commitment, how different your life will be. How long have you been sober? Well, I don't use years, and I'll tell you why. All I'm going to say is it's a long time. 
And the reason I say that is I don't believe in talking about the length of sobriety because it really doesn't mean anything. You could be sober for 30 years and still be a jerk. <laughs> you, could be, you could be sober for a year and be phenomenal. So the amount of years doesn't matter to me. It's like the questions that I ask people when they want to talk about how long they've been sober. Number one is, are you happy? Because if you're grouchy, irritable, unhappy, sobriety doesn't mean anything to me. Number two, are you doing good work in this world to help other people get sober? Because if you're helping other people get sober, you're probably going to have a pretty darn good life. But bragging about the number of years, which many people do, isn't really healthy. And then the other thing I ask people is, has you, have you cross-addicted to anything? So if you dropped alcohol, but now you're a sugar addict or a nicotine addict or a caffeine addict, that happens all the time. I mean, if you go to certain meetings, you'll see people guzzling caffeine, smoking tons of cigarettes before and after the meeting. And are they sober? No, not at all. They've just cross-addicted. They've cross-addicted from alcohol to nicotine or sugar or caffeine, but they're not sober. So that's why I say I'm not a big fan of talking about years because someone could have quit drinking 25 years ago, but the founder, Bill W. of Alcoholics Anonymous, died of lung cancer from smoking, for God's sake. So here's this guy that everyone puts up on a pedestal for founding Alcoholics Anonymous, and he was a freaking cross-addicted nicotine addict. So it takes a lot to impress me, Camden, and those type of things don't impress me. So he just cross-addicted. He just, and he probably doubled the amount he smoked to make up for the alcohol that he was missing. The reason why I asked was because I was going to ask you as a follow-up question, do you still feel the temptation? Is it still difficult to not drink? Oh, not at all, Camden. It's easy. I have gone through hell since getting sober. And every process of hell that I've walked through, I've never, ever chosen to drink again. It doesn't even pop into my head. And that's the other thing. If you have a really strong recovery program, it should be effortless to stay sober. I feel the need to take a break in the middle of this episode to share my own thoughts on this, which I wasn't able to share in the moment. While... For David, it might not have been as difficult for him to stop drinking entirely. For many, if not most people, it's just not a reality. Addiction is hard. And even for me, who have gone through these addictions too, while not alcohol, other things, I get it. It's hard and it doesn't really go away. It's okay, you're not alone. And you shouldn't feel guilty if it's not effortless to stay sober, to stay away from those things that you're addicted to. It's okay, it's normal. What matters is the fact that you keep staying strong, you keep away from it. You're doing good. Anyway, back to the show. It doesn't matter. I, I went through a bankruptcy in 2008, a very difficult time. I lost three homes with the economic crash in 2008. I, I had all the great reasons to go back and drink, and I never did. And when people say, how do you do that? How do you go from a serious alcoholic to going through life and all your challenges and not drink? And I was, I'll say it's not the same for everyone. But if you have a very strong daily ritualistic routine, on recovery, you might never have a craving to drink again. 
Have you written other books besides the one we talked about earlier? Oh, I have 11 books out, Camden. The last one, Love and Relationship Secrets that Everyone Needs to Know, that was number 11. And then we have all other kind of books. People want to check out the website. It's talkdavid.com, T-A-L-K-David.com. And you can go there and check out all the programs we offer, all the books we have. We have online video courses, webinars going on all the time, tons of information. So if you're looking for personal growth help, check it out, talkdavid.com. And if you want to work with me one-on-one, we do it via phone and Skype with people from all over the world. It's a blast. Cool. Where else can we find you? Well, all over social media, just Google my name, David Essel, and you'll find uh, Twitter, David Essel, Instagram, David Essel, LinkedIn, David Essel, Facebook, David Essel. You'll find us all over the internet. (laughs) And we have a YouTube channel with about 1,800 free videos on personal growth. So a ton of videos for people. And all you have to do is go to YouTube and Google David Essel, E-S-S-E-L, and you'll find my channel and you could watch videos for years, Camden. (laughs) (laughs) I'm sure you've spent a lot of time making those. Oh my God, it's been a long time. I think we've been on YouTube 10 or 15 years now. Oh my gosh. Mm -hmm. So you probably got some of the original YouTube quality. (laughs) Sure do. Oh my God, yeah. We got, oh, the first 10 or so, 20 that are there are pretty interesting to look at. (laughs) Love 280p. Let's go. Yes, that's right. (laughs) Well, David, it's been great having you on the show. Camden, thank you very much. I've enjoyed it as well. And I hope you continue on with your project and help people change their lives. That's what it's all about. Thank you. Yes, you're welcome. No, it's like I said, I've enjoyed being with you. And thank you for doing the work to be here today. You're very welcome. You have a great weekend. You too. Okay, bye now. We hope you enjoyed this episode of The Happiness Question. If you did, please consider reviewing and subscribing to our show on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you listen. The Happiness Question is hosted, researched, written, and recorded by me, Camden Boyd. Edited by Camden Boyd, our theme song, Happier, was both written and recorded by La Yi especially for the happiness question. Special thanks to today's guest, David Essel, for joining us on this episode. You can visit David on his website, talkdavid.com. You can find more of us at thehappinessquestion.com and can get in touch with us at contact at thehappinessquestion.com. We hope you have a fantastic day. Bye.